So to prepare myself for today's episode, I ate over 40 pizzas in 30 days. 40 pizzas in 30 days. What is up, my ninjas? Welcome to another episode of Post Credits with Gil Garcia. Today, we are plunging into the world of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Does this new generation of turtles shred its predecessors? Let's find out and get into Act 1. Alright, so Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem is the seventh iteration of the classic characters on the big screen. The film follows the Turtle Brothers as they work to earn the love of New York City while facing down an army of mutants. Mutant Mayhem is written and produced by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and directed by Jeff Rowe, known for The Mitchells vs. The Machines. The movie stars the voice acting talent of Micah Abbey as Donatello, Shimon Brown Jr. as Michelangelo, Nicholas Cantu as Leonardo, Brady Noon as Raphael, Io Ediberry as April O'Neil, and Jackie Chan as Master Splinter. Now, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have a strong impact on culture. It's dating way back to the 80s, so this is an attempt to bring them up to 2023's generation and give kids of this age a new iteration of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So from their comic books to the animated television series, video games, and motion pictures, these turtles have seen so many different adaptations and variations. Counting the other big screen adaptations, we've had five live action movies. Three from the 90s, where the actors were portrayed in bodysuits looking like the turtles, the ones that everyone knows about. Two from the 2010s that were produced by Michael Bay that had our heroes that were completely CGI. And then, of course, there's the 2007 TMNT, which was completely computer animated in the vein of Toy Story. And now Mutant Mayhem, which is the first hand-drawn animated cartoon film, which I think was obviously done in computers, but it wasn't a computer animated film. It was still very much like a cartoon. As a child of the 90s, like, I... Did love the Ninja Turtles growing up. I played all their video games, rewatched Secret of the Ooze hundreds of times, and even had some collectible pogs of theirs. My favorite, my favorite pog was actually a Shredder Slammer. I remember it was like holographic, it was like metal. That thing was pretty heavy. It almost felt like a, a quarter dollar. That thing was awesome. I wonder where it went. <laughs> Maybe I should look through my old stuff and try and find my pogs, try and bring those back. There was always something endearing about the 90s films. I mean, the way the characters are designed alone was practical. They got their faces to move and characters were actually live action. So the other actors in the scene had something to act against. It was also cheesy. You have things like the Vanilla Ice Ninja Rap and the mmm nom noms in a, what was it? A Secret of the Ooze. So it was a, it was a good time. Now, with that being said, I remember watching TMNT in 2007 in the movie theaters. It was one of the only few movies that I've ever seen at the Universal Studios CityWalk movie theater. And we were there for a midnight showing. We got bumped. There was like a technical difficulty with the showing. And everyone that showed up there was actually bumped at least an hour and a half later to watch uh, another showing of it. Because I guess the projector wasn't working or something. 
So we were there at about 2 a.m. in the morning watching TMNT. I was struggling to stay awake. I think I even fell asleep in some parts. But I just remember that that movie was a little bit too dark, a little bit too serious for its own good. The animation style was good at the time. But having re-watched it recently, I can honestly tell you that TMNT's animations don't hold up. They're very reminiscent of early Pixar films, that they're rubbery, non-textured renderings. The movie also has like a kind of a weird like superhero plot to it with aliens and stuff. I can't really remember the intricacies of it, but I just know that it, even with the stellar voice casting of like Chris Evans and, and stuff, the movie just wasn't very good. It was fine. It brought the Ninja Turtles to modern audiences back then, but it wasn't very good. And as for the 2010 version of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the uh, Michael Bay films, as they call them, even though Michael Bay didn't direct them, he was very much uh, an integral part of bringing them to life. Uh, you have the regular Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 2014, and then Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows in uh, 2016. I never got a chance to see them theatrically. But I did catch them long after on a cable airing. I thought they were pretty fun, pretty fine. But they do suffer from a lot of the cliche Michael Bay filmmaking techniques of the time. You have gratuitous shots of Megan Fox and her ass and a lot of sky beams and lens flares. And they were just really big, dumb, fun movies. But they did also make the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles these big, hulking superheroes. They're even bulletproof. Twice in a row, in both movies, they have these eclectic action set pieces at the end of the movie where they're on top of a building fighting a CGI metal monster. Obviously, in the first one, it was Shredder. And in this second one, it was Krang. But I think they just kind of missed the mark. I don't think that there was enough teeth to keep the franchise going after Out of the Shadows. Bebop and Rocksteady were really funny in it, but overall it just wasn't a, a good movie. Now that leads me to my impressions of Mutant Mayhem. Does this movie finally do the heroes justice? Do we finally get to see the true version of our heroes in a half shell? Let's get to my spoiler-free review and find out. So since starting this podcast, I've always been really highly positive about the films I've reviewed. From Mission Impossible to last week I did The Haunted Mansion. I've had a great time at the theaters uh, this summer. It's been really great, and I haven't had a lot to complain about. I mean, until I finally get around to watching The Meg, but that's another story. <laughs> so with that being said, with all these podcasts I've, I've recorded, they've all been generally liked. I've, I've liked all these five movies that I've seen. So does the sixth one break the streak? Hell no. I fucking love this movie. Mutant Mayhem is fucking awesome. Like, right away, you can see the immense creativity that went into every frame of this film. The people behind this movie are so talented, and the style of it just immediately grabs your attention. So the movie not only looks like it's hand-drawn, but if you pay attention to the foreground and the background objects, things look like they were literally scratched. Like, out of coloring pencils and doodles and crayons, it is really captivating to see. You can see every single imperfection, which makes the movie so unique and beautiful. And obviously, it's going to draw a lot of comparisons to Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. But I think this movie kind of has its own unique charm to it that it's not very fair to compare it to Across the Spider-Verse in many aspects. 
I think Across the Spider-Verse is more ambitious in its visual styling since it's dealing with multiple different universes and each uh, character has their own unique look in their own world. But here, they keep everything in the same aesthetic, and I think that that is beautiful. There are sequences where the turtles make it above the ground, and you can really indulge in like the fluorescence and soak in the strokes, the colors stringing across the screen. The first time that Splinter takes them up to the surface and they see Times Square, I was blown away. The movie is so beautiful in that sense, and on top of that, you not only have this beautiful aesthetic visually, but you have an amazing score from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross that are accompanying these feel-good moments and bringing the vibe of the entire movie at its apex. And that's not even to mention the licensed music that they use here. And they use it so tastefully. They have music from A Tribe Called Quest, M.O.P., Blackstreet, Four Non Blondes. There was sequences in this movie where the music helped raise the hair on my arm. I got goosebumps watching a lot of this. And it's just a testament to how far we're making it in animated filmmaking that these creators can take these risks. They can make a movie that looks like Chicken Scratch and have it be really compelling and really funny and interesting. And there's almost so many Easter eggs laid into this movie that I went a second time to watch it just to try and pick and... and find these little easter eggs given the recommendation by a friend of mine he also said to go watch this movie in 3d my original screening of this movie was in imax so i decided to go today right before this podcast and watch it a second time and the second time that i watched it i watched it in 3d and those animations that i mentioned about the foreground objects the background objects the chicken scratch and uh, doodles that are going on with like the particle effects and the clouds and uh, smoke and stuff like that. It is amazing to see how much attention to detail was done with just a a flat two-dimensional like animation style. It's almost like watching a Paper Mario movie, but in three dimensions. It's really interesting and unique, and I love that about this movie. But alongside the flurry of the spectacle, Mutant Mayhem may be the funniest movie of the year as well. And that's a testament to the writing of Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, and Jeff Rowe. These guys were on their A-game here. And you can sense a lot of the sensibilities of Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen's writing here. Because you feel like the dialogue is plucked directly out of a teenager's mouth. This is a natural, quippy way of delivering an animated and action-packed film to modern audiences without pandering to them. You don't feel like these characters are saying stuff like lit and, uh, oh, that's fire, or even in the most cringy case when uh, Shuri in Black Panther says, what are those? Like, it, it doesn't feel like they're just hopping on a trend. This is writing of teenagers in the modern era, and I loved it. It's tailoring to this generation of audiences. So there's a lot of punchlines, a lot of quippy beats. These Ninja Turtles are very funny. As an ensemble and as individuals, they all have their own characteristics, their own personality. They all let them shine throughout the entire film. And the personalities come across really well done. They are funny. They're engaging and The dialogue is so quick and quippy. There's a scene in the movie where the Ninja Turtles are in their first action set piece. 
they're in a garage and there's a car that's spiraling out of control because I think it was Donatello takes his staff and plunges it into the gas pedal and into the steering wheel of the vehicle. So the car is like doing donuts around them while they're fighting these henchmen. And I didn't catch it the first time, but today when I watched it, I think it is Raphael that says, oh my God, they're Tokyo drifting around us. It was fucking hilarious. I don't know why, but that line stood out to me. It's it's so culturally relevant and hilarious and underserved that if you caught it, it would make you laugh like hysterically about it. And that's what I love about it. This film will resonate with both kids and adults. It's it's good for both generations. Kids will be there for the cartooniness and the colors and all the funniness of it. But the adults will stay because it actually has a resonant message behind it about acceptance, about wanting to be brought into society and wanting people to love you for who you are instead of what they expect you to be. This movie is very mature in keeping it catering to both audiences. I think people will love this. This is a home run, in my opinion. Uh, The writing is spectacular and major kudos to Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg and Jeff Rowe. This is an awesome awesomely written film now of course the punchlines couldn't hit if the film didn't have such a stellar cast of voice talent i mentioned at the top of the show that the reason the michael bay produced films were so disjointed from the source material is that the characters were hulking monsters they weren't like teenagers so to speak but the this movie in particular benefits from going directly at the core of the characters personalities what they were designed to be when they first made it onto the comic books and made it onto the television screens. These characters are teenagers and each character is dealing with their own identity crisis while navigating the harsh realities that society won't accept them how they are. The vulnerabilities play out exceptionally with this young cast of voice actors. I don't think you can get that across if you hired 30 year olds to do this job. These teenagers, these kids, do such a great job landing these punchlines, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in the filmmaking factoids, but they have such good chemistry around one another. And you can't have a Ninja Turtles movie without these characters butting heads and making fun of each other and doing the brotherly love stuff that you come to know. And just from the voice acting alone, you can feel like these characters, these actors, feel like they are brothers. Now, <laughs> with that being said, in a year or two, when all these kids go through puberty are they going to have to recast these roles are they going to make the ninja turtles grow up with them that's to be seen and it's something that i don't want to think about now because the purity of their voices in this uh movie it's spectacular it's it's easy to engage with and it's endearing about them now my favorite character of the bunch was donatello I think Micah Abbey has amazing comedic timing and delivery. His dialogue feels natural, feels quippy, and well within the element of the story. But sadly, I feel like because his dialogue is so funny and because he's so hilarious, his new personality of being not only the nerd and the brain of the operation is also he's the comedic relief too. And because of that, I feel like Michelangelo became the least favorite of the group. Not because he wasn't likable or funny, but because his specialty of the group was always to be the comedic relief. Uh, Michelangelo was always the one to deliver funny lines when Shredder is about to kill them or they go into a, a fight. But with this particular group, 
Every character is funny. The film gives everyone in the group a chance to be comedic, which in the originals, Mikey's main characteristic was to be the comedic relief. So with that being said, you have Leo, who is the leader, Raphael, the muscle, Donatello is the brains, but Mikey just kind of stands out as an oddball because his main characteristic just gets thrown aside. But I'm hoping that in future iterations, since they've already announced sequels and other plans for these turtles, that they're going to improve upon that in the future installments. Ice Cube. Ice Cube is fucking great in this movie. As Superfly, the central antagonist, it was great to have him come in. He has this split personality uh, of being like these this inviting cousin to the turtles when they discover that there's other mutants in the world. And he brings them in and you get endeared to him and his group. And, you know, by the end of it, when he becomes a big ultra villain of the film, Ice Cube becomes really intimidating and crazy. And it's awesome that they got a a character and an actor of his talent to come in and make this movie. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in the filmmaking factoids, too. But, yeah, I think uh, Superfly was super intense and terrifying in this movie. There's two other highlights I want to point out before we move on to the next part of the show. Uh, We have Paul Rudd's Mondo Gecko and Jackie Chan Splinter. They are amazing side characters, and I can't wait to talk about them in spoilers. But I think in a way, Mondo Gecko might steal the show for some people. There's some controversy going on with this film when it comes to April O'Neil. The design of the character is not what people have stereotypically have come to know of April O'Neil. Everyone looks at April O'Neil as a slender, red-headed damsel in distress of all times. And I think this movie does April O'Neil a lot of justice. This version of April O'Neil throws out all the conventional things you've come to know about the character. First of all, she's not a skinny blonde or redhead. She's an obese African-American woman who is struggling with her own identity and acceptance into society, which makes her cooperation, her collaboration with the Ninja Turtles make so much more sense. And Ayo Edebiri, she's the actress from The Bear. If you guys have seen FX's The Bear, Ayo is exceptional in that show, and she has been nominated for an Emmy Award because of it. And Ayo gives this character her own uniqueness. She's not just a useless accessory and a damsel in distress, but actually she comes across as this universe's version of Lois Lane. She helps the turtles. She almost acts like their PR for the public. She introduces them to the world by making them out to be the heroes. She has a lot to do with this film that isn't just, hey, grab me that weapon. Let Casey Jones do his own thing. She is very good in this, and I think the fact that people are putting her down because of the way Jeff Rowe and the artist decided to go with her physically, I think it is a huge disservice to the character and to Ayo Edebiri's performance here. I respect the animators for taking this big leap for this premier character in the story and going so far away from the source material And it goes to show the purpose of this story is all about acceptance, right? And it's kind of odd that there is backlash with this story because people cannot accept April O'Neil's design here. So, this movie is going to be a box office success. We'll talk about that more in Act 3. 
but there are obviously going to be future installments. Nickelodeon has always already discussed the plans for this franchise for the Turtles to have an animated series, which is going to follow up on this movie on uh, Nickelodeon and Paramount+. Plus. That animated series will take place between Mutant Mayhem and the sequel that will be coming out in a couple years. So kids are going to flock to that. They're going to love that. They're going to binge that show so much and the anticipation will be building. Is this movie a strong contender for the best animated film category at the Academy Awards? If you told me that Across the Spider-Verse would have some competition this year, I would have laughed you off. When I watched Across the Spider-Verse, I thought this is a shoe-in for the best animated feature film category. There's nothing that will compete with it. I disagree now. I think Mutant Mayhem can contend for that Oscar. And in many ways, I think it may deserve it over Across the Spider-Verse. But I'll go over that in spoilers later on. This movie executes a very solid plotline. It feels complete. And it's unique enough to give it a cut above Across the Spider-Verse when it comes to award season voting. But we'll see. I still love Across the Spider-Verse. I'm not knocking it down for anything. But I think I love this movie so much that without rose-tinted glasses on, I can see this movie may have a fight on its hands. I want to give you my rating for Mutant Mayhem. If Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 was a 4 out of 5, Mutant Mayhem is a 5 out of 5 for me. I would have rated it a 4. But having watched it a second time in 3D, there were a lot of things I picked up on that I didn't notice the first time that I ended up loving. It exaggerated my love for this movie. And I think it's almost flawless. I I have no complaints about this film. It's right up there with Spider-Verse, John Wick, Chapter 4, Oppenheimer for my favorite movies of the year so far. And I got to give Roe a lot of credit. This movie gets down to a quick and straightforward runtime of 99 minutes so it doesn't feel like there's a single minute wasted here it doesn't feel like it drags in any parts it's very tight it's very clean and it gets straight into the point without overstaying its welcome this is a very good movie and i cannot recommend it enough if you have a chance to see it on a big screen i say go see it in imax go see it in 3d this is a movie not to be missed Don't let yourself just get swept up in streaming services. This is a a theatrical movie that will bring out the best qualities of the movie-going experience. So that's my glowing review of Mutant Mayhem. We're in the home stretch now on the first half of the podcast. So let's go to the box office numbers and the filmmaking factoids. All right, as of recording this podcast, looking at the Rotten Tomatoes meter... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem currently sits at 96% certified fresh from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. And audiences agree. Audiences are sitting at 94% approval rating. With a $70 million budget, Mutant Mayhem made $28 million over the weekend, but $43 million domestically since the early showings on Wednesday that don't account for the weekend box office. That puts it halfway to its budget and and a little bit more than halfway to its budget so it's going to be profitable definitely by next week so (laughs) here's the sad part even with 28 million dollars over the weekend mutant mayhem will take third on the box office charts 
Second place belongs to, and I'm so disappointed with humanity for this, the Meg 2. The Meg 2 will take the second spot of the box office charts. The Meg 2 came in with $30 million over the weekend, thus destroying my faith in humanity. Hopefully next week, Mutant Mayhem hops over the Meg just by word of mouth. But if the Meg takes number two next week, I'm really going to be disappointed. Go go watch this movie. Do not watch the Meg 2. Fuck that movie. <laughs> There's a reason why I'm not going to be recording a podcast about it. Fuck that movie. Um... <laughs> Now, let's get into filmmaking factoids. For starters, Ice Cube. I mentioned that it was such a big deal for them to bring Ice Cube as a voiceover role into this franchise, and it set the tone for the villainy and for the stakes of the franchise. And Ice Cube only agreed to do this role because he found the name of his character really cool, Superfly. He thought that that was sick, and also his children are big fans of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they kind of forced him into this, and I think he had a lot of fun with the role. You know, if he comes back for future iterations, we'll see. I think he was really great in this. Now, Jeff Rowe, the director of this movie, specifically cited Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse as an inspiration for the film. He also cites that his form of animation is distinctly different from Spider-Verse because there's a lot of flaws and imperfections. They specifically chose a low frame rate for the animation that makes it feel like an independent sketch cartoon. He said the idea was to make the movie feel like it's an entire concept art drawing come to life. And you can see that. It does feel like the entire movie is concept art. And I think the flaws make this movie so interesting and so visually compelling. Now, in contrast to some of the normal scenarios for animation, normally you get an actor, you throw them into a sound booth, and they're going to record their dialogue on their own while listening in on what the other characters in the scene are saying. But for this, the cast actually recorded their voice roles together in a group rather than independently. A single recording session could include up to seven actors at a time, which gave them the environment allowed for the cast to play off each other and build that chemistry that we talked about. The core four of this movie, Leo, Michelangelo, Donatello, and Raphael, they have a lot of chemistry with one another. And I think that's a testament to this method of them throwing them all into the same sound booth, into the same studio, and having them rift one another. It's, it's really good to see, and I hope that they keep that in mind when they do the sequel. So, that will bring us to the end of the spoiler-free portion of the show. I highly recommend that you go see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem in theaters as soon as possible. This is a must-see movie. If you've seen the film and wish to dive deeper, after the outro, please stick around for our spoiler-filled review. Otherwise, I'm going to see you next week for a very special episode of Post Credits. Next week, I am not going to be reviewing The Meg 2, but instead, I will be introducing a new semi-regular discussion episode that I call Guilty Pleasures. These Guilty Pleasure films will be featured by trash-tier films from my childhood that I revisited recently as an adult. And next week, I have four movies for you. We have... 2004 skateboarding comedy Grind, Jungle to Jungle, Ready to Rumble, and Biodome. <laughs> I'm extremely excited to try something new, but it's going to be exciting. I'm going to be breaking away from this format specifically for that episode. I think next week we're going to do about 
10 to 15 minutes per movie and do all four movies with spoilers. So if you have not seen those movies, now's the time to go watch them. There's Grind, Jungle to Jungle, Ready to Rumble, and Biodome. So those are the four movies. So for those of you signing off for this portion of the podcast, what did you think of Mutant Mayhem? Are you excited to see the future installments? And will you watch the Paramount Plus television series? Let me know on social media. On X, I'm at GilX87. On threads and Instagram, I am at Gilly087. Be sure to leave a review for the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Spotify. And I'm extremely excited to announce I have my own official YouTube channel now. So you can follow me there. And from there, you could also leave comments on each individual episodes and we can touch base one-to-one. Remember, if you want to stay for the spoiler-filled review, stay after the credit song And for those of you signing off, go watch a movie. This is a spoiler alert. This is a spoiler alert. Welcome back to the spoiler-filled section of the episode where I'm going to talk about all the plot details and all the plot points involving Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. The first thing we've got to talk about is Baxter Stockman. At the beginning of the film, he makes an appearance as a sympathetic anti-hero. He's the one that develops the ooze to create a family for himself. It ends up creating the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Superfly, Bebop, Rocksteady, and the rest of the mutant cast. It's a deep cut nod to the comic book origins of the character, although Stockman in that source material was more of a mustache twirling villain than here where he is like a sympathetic father figure to Superfly and I think it gives a little bit more gravitas that Giancarlo Esposito portrayed the character because you really do feel for him in that opening sequence and what ends up happening to him. Will he be there for future installments? I don't think so. I think they did uh, fully kill off the character. But if he does come back, it wouldn't surprise me. The uh, baby turtles, they were so adorable. The scene where Splinter explains the origin of how he came to find the turtles. And you see the little turtles like dipped in the ooze and they're just all by themselves. It's heartbreaking. It's, it's so cute, man. Like I think I want a pet turtle after that, but it's so adorable, man. I, I love the way that the little baby turtles looked, which will also lead into the little montage of them growing up with uh, Splinter. And you get to see them as like infant turtles and even the infant turtles were so cute with their big bulgy eyes and their big heads and Raphael's like this big thick meaty turtle (laughs) it's so adorable so cute and it really gets in the feels another deviation from the original source material that I found endearing despite the backlash was the fact that the turtles were trained by splinter and internet videos those who were upset by this are claiming that it's a desecration of splinters karate and ninjutsu past And others like me believe that this fits perfectly in the generation of the story. As I mentioned earlier in the show, this is the first big screen adaptation that treats the turtles like teenagers. 
So to me, it makes so much sense that the teens and Splinter are learning from YouTube, learning from TikTok and social media, and they're on cell phones a lot. It is a very new age version of the Mutant Ninja Turtles that fits into this day and age. And I love it for that. I think any backlash against that is is unfair. This is made for Gen Zers, and you can really feel that. I had no problem with it whatsoever. To that point, the story's thematic message is all about acceptance. The driving motivator for Master Splinter, April, Leo, Donatello, Raphael, and Michelangelo is that they are seen as from society as freaks and pariahs. And for me to hear that there is backlash surrounding April in particular, because as I mentioned before, April is getting a lot of backlash because she isn't your stereotypical thin, redheaded supermodel of a damsel in distress MacGuffin. She's actually a character with a lot of depth. And for me to hear that there is backlash surrounding her and Splinter's possible sexuality, the turtles being teenagers, I find it incredibly naive and ridiculous. For these reasons alone, it makes the message of the story so much more prophetic and it kind of exaggerates the point here. They're proving exactly what this story is trying to prove. And it's kind of funny. The people that are making these claims don't listen to them. They are, one, they're not fans of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Two, they're too old for this franchise anyway. And three, they probably never watched the movie. They had no desire. They saw what April O'Neil looks like. And they chose on their own not to watch it anyway. So therefore, their opinions do not matter on the subject. Go watch the movie. Develop an opinion for yourself. Go in with an open mind because I'm sure you're going to love this. This movie hits on so many different layers that I'm so disappointed that today's society is so unaccepting of these new fresh ideas and these new creators, these new actors, writers, that they're quick to just shun something before even giving it a chance. Now, there's going to be a lot of comparisons made with Across the Spider-Verse. And I think the action in this movie may not reach the heights of Across the Spider-Verse's vulture or train scene, but they are laced with a lot of humor and style. And I mentioned before, these characters are very quippy. They are very likable. They're cracking jokes. They're clumsily going along certain action set pieces. And I think that adds to the charm of the movie. As younger versions of these characters, we see them banging around in a garage, you know, throwing wrenches and whatever they can to defeat the villains because they don't know better because this is their first time. They are learning to be ninjas. So they are not sneaking in. They're not professionals at this level. Even Raphael runs in screaming into the garage in the first action scene and gets them into trouble because they were not expecting so many guys to be in the garage. And to see them scramble through that garage, throwing things and, and kind of learning how to fight as a team, it's awesome. It's awesome to watch. It's very fun. It's energetic. And it brings with it a lot of humor and hijinks. Now, <laughs> I also like the fact that after we learn about Superfly and his connection to Baxter Stockman and the Ninja Turtles, they decide they don't want to go along with this plan and they have this large scramble in the middle of Brooklyn 
where they're both in vehicles, they're chasing after one another, and they have What's Up by Four Non Blondes playing in the background in a remixed version that is hyperspeed and over the top. It's hilarious. It got my my goosebumps going. And it's probably one of the best sequences in the movie. Hey, yeah, yeah, what's going on? <laughs> you would never have thought that that kind of song would be playing in an action scene like this, but it works beautifully here. It's so funny. The big punchline of the movie is all about milk. <laughs> right from the get-go, Master Splinter tells the kids that he doesn't want them leaving the sewer because he's afraid that humans are going to want to milk them for their blood. The kids are like, dude, we don't even have nipples. Like, what are you talking about? No one wants to milk us. And then by the third act, they're getting milked by uh, Cynthia Utram. It's hilarious, man. Everyone in the theater were laughing hysterically by the milk jokes. It's super funny. Now, the final action set piece of the movie with Super Duper Fly, it's pretty horrifying. Just the idea of a creature who has like narwhals for fingers and a pile of horses for legs It's extremely gross and grotesque and kind of uneasy to watch. I think the animators did a good job of keeping it uh, with wide shots of him and not going too far deep into the details of how he's made up because that could be really gross. You see all these animals just kind of like squinting and their eyes are shifting around the body. I even heard a kid in my second viewing scream because of the appearance of Super Duper Fly. I don't mind it. I think today's audiences have been a little bit sensitive to horrifying figures. So I'm all for Super Duper Fly being this scary hulking monster. There needs to be a little bit of horror splashed into uh, the story that they're telling. And I didn't mind it whatsoever. One knock which almost made this movie a four and a half out of me is that Superfly's plot is basically the same exact plot from Amazing Spider-Man. He wants to make mutants rise up and take over the streets of New York. And he wants to blow this like chemical into the atmosphere so everyone can breathe and all the animals can rise up. I like the idea, but yeah, it is very reminiscent of The Amazing Spider-Man. But I did find it refreshing that he didn't actually go through with the plan. They stopped Superfly right off the bat at that shipwreck that they were hosted in. And that's when he becomes Super Duper Fly. So instead of like shooting a sky beam into the sky, so I, I respect them for restraining themselves there, but that was one flaw that I found in the movie. When you watch this movie, you see the love and attention that Jeff Rowe, Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg are bringing to these characters and bringing on screen. So there's a lot of references to the old Ninja Turtles films and comic books and the animated series. And the movie is chock filled of Easter eggs and references. You have things from like Vanilla Ice's Ninja Rap playing in the garage. And then you have live action inserts of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. My favorite though was when Master Splinter takes off this like disguise and and shows that there's a couple cutouts of real human figures to try and convince the turtles that they should stay in the sewer and that the real humans are right here. Cutouts are obviously all the Chris's. You have Chris Pratt, Chris Pine and Chris Evans. The Chris Evans one is kind of interesting because he actually was Casey Jones in 2007's TMNT. There's a nice little reference and nod there. The big company that they're fighting off is known as TCRI. Comics are known as TGRI, which 
for any fans of the series know that that is a front for Krang's company and will potentially hint at Krang coming into the series later on, which I think there have already been hints that Cynthia Utram, if you look at the way her face is shaped and her body and her costume, it's very apparent she might actually be Krang herself. So that's a good little twist there that I think Hawkeye viewers will pay attention to. The other mutants in Superfly's gang include Mondo Gecko, which is played by Paul Rudd, Bebop, played by Seth Rogen, Rocksteady, who is surprisingly John Cena. I think there's a lot of modulation and effects going on with his voice that I couldn't tell that that was John Cena initially. Wingnut, which is played by Natasha Dimitru, who was in What We Do in the Shadows, another FX production. Leatherhead, which is played by Rose Byrne. Screw loose. There's a lot of really good character actors here. And then we get to the after credits, which if you stuck around after the credits, there's a couple of very important teases. We see the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles going to high school, going to prom, trying to get along and, and record viral videos. It's all very funny. But ultimately it shows and it pans out to Cynthia Otram keeping an eye on the Ninja Turtles, casing them. And then she realizes that she can't just capture them. She's going to need to bring someone in that will be able to destroy them. And they pan out a little bit further, and in the rainstorm we see the Shredder. So we do get to see the Shredder in this movie, but of course it comes after credits. I think it was a good idea to leave him off until the Mutant Ninja Turtles are leveled up until they get a little bit more comfortable with their martial arts and they become more proficient as vigilantes. So I like that they're saving the Shredder for a special instance and they'll bring in the Foot Clan and we're going to see a lot of references to them. And I'm excited. I can't wait to see who they're going to get to play Shredder in the next film. So I'm so excited. The Ninja Turtles are back and in many ways I think this is the best they've ever been. The 90s were classically cheesy, the 2007 film was a novel attempt, and the 2010 movies were decent, dumb, fun live-action films. But Mutant Mayhem feels like a changing of the guard for the franchise. This is the first time we have people really excited to see the future of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's incredible to see. It's hysteria all over again. They were so profound in the 90s and the 80s, and they were kind of shuffled and lost within the early 2000s and all the Marvel comic books coming to life, that they're finally getting their chance in the limelight once again. And I cannot wait to see what they do with the sequel and the animated films. So, this was a longer episode. I had a lot more to gush about today. A lot more intrigue with this movie in particular. And it's going to go down as one of my favorites of the year. And I can honestly tell you that right now with us just being halfway through the year. So that will be a wrap for us today. I want to thank you once again for listening to Post Credits, and as always, go watch a movie.